Well, if the Pac-12 expands and stays together the way I think and hope they will, Oregon State can actually be in a really good position going forward, which we haven't been able to say very much in the last couple months. You are Locked On Pac-12, your daily podcast on the Pac-12 Conference. It's the Locked On Podcast Network, your team every day. Welcome, everybody, to another episode of Locked On Pack 12. I'm your host, Spencer McLaughlin. Thank you so much for making this your first listen or your first view of the day. Part of the Locked On Podcast Network, your team every day and your number one source to stay up to date with our media rights free and beloved conference of champions. Like, comment, subscribe, rate, review, please, and thank you wherever you listen to or watch this show, which today is brought to you by Bird Dogs. Go to birddogs.com slash college and they'll throw in a free custom Bird Dogs Yeti-style tumbler with every order. Every dayers of this very podcast know that if we're talking Oregon State, we're doing so with my man Carter Baines, who is here today, 24-7 Sports National Dex- Desk, beaverblitz.com. He's host of the damn podcast with uh, with Angie over there. Carter, it is quite the time to be a Pac-12 fan of liter- literally any any school still in this conference right now. And over the course of the last several months, the two schools that are never mentioned at all aren't wanted. They're the ugly duckling, it seems. Ironic for obvious reasons, but they're kind of the ugly ducklings of the conference realignment landscape. It's Oregon State and Washington State. No one ever talks about them. But if if the Pac-12 stays together, which I suspect they will, and they add San Diego State and SMU, going forward... That is actually a program, I think football-wise, we don't need to talk about basketball, we're going to do that later, that is set up for a good amount of success. San Diego State, I I think, fits perfectly in the Pac-12 for so many reasons, but the fact that it has been a Mountain West power for so many years now, um, I I think it just smooths that transition because, you know, you and I were talking before the show about, about other schools like SMU, you know, the tradition is there, but recently, you know, that football program just it has some work to do. San Diego State's already there, you know. So I think having a team that can already beat Pac-12 uh, opponents coming into your league, um, you know, that's huge. Because think about some of the other conference realignment situations. I mean, you look at the Big 12 this year. I think there are a couple of, uh, of programs that could have, um, you know, a little bit of an adjustment period. San Diego State, I think, slots right into the Pac-12 and is, you know, maybe not a contender right away, but it's at least going to hold its own. Yeah, I I think they're probably in the middle area of of the conference. But I look at where, you know, the Pac-12 sits in realignment and those being the most likely additions, as we've talked about for a long, long time, seemingly forever here here on the show. And yeah, SMU hasn't had the recent success they did back in the 80s and 90s, that sort of era, got the death penalty. They've been trying to claw their way back ever since, but they are making investments. They have got a lot of money over there. San Diego State, I don't think has quite as much money compared to SMU, but they've got more of the tradition and the culture and the environment. And, you know, they're also in a great geographical location for, for recruiting. But I think with both of those schools, coming in, I don't see them as, you know, automatically superseding 
Oregon State from a from a football standpoint. It doesn't mean they couldn't have individual seasons where they're better, but with where Oregon State is at right now, they are obviously rooting for the Pac-12 to, to stay together in, in a big way because apparently nobody else would want them at the Power 5 level if you know the chaos scenario were were to come to pass, which I don't find likely, but you know what, I don't know anything anymore. So I think that that's a position where Oregon State has to honestly feel pretty good going forward, thinking about the prospect of adding San Diego State and SMU, and thinking, okay, where can we fit into the landscape of the Pac-12? You know, football-wise, it's at the very—I mean, they're all ready for the last couple of years in the upper half. And I think they really kind of entrench themselves in in that category going forward if this is the move that the Pac-12 makes. It would have been a different situation a couple of years ago when Oregon State was losing to the likes of Hawaii in non-conference games. Uh, you know, those Mountain West opponents were were proving very, very challenging for Oregon State. But, uh, you know, you can go back to as recent as last year when Oregon State beats the two best teams in the Mountain West in non-conference um, and, and doing so decisively against Boise State, you know, I think at, at least in the the first few years of a San Diego State membership era in the Pac-12, um, Oregon State would, uh, you know, it, I, I think it would advantage Oregon State to have a team like that who comes in and more often than not, you're going to be favored to beat. Now, you know, down the line, the San Diego State take advantage of um, you know, a budget that would increase and, you know, access to more recruiting territories playing in the Pac-12. You know, I think you could see programs like San Diego State and SMU build up to Oregon State's level or potentially surpass Oregon State down the line. But the next few years, I, I think, are so critically important to Oregon State, you know, maintaining this newfound success under Jonathan Smith, um, that I think the the instant benefit of having a team that you know, you might not be able to beat up on, but you could probably rely on for a win most years. Um, I, I think that would go a long way in helping Oregon State stay in that top half of the Pac-12. There, there's a lot of different scenarios that could play out for the Pac-12 now and in the future in, in realignment. And I, you know, have long framed the discussion as kind of this round and, you know, what could happen in the next round and, and all that sort of stuff. As someone who you know covers Oregon State, is a fan of uh, the program and whatnot, do you want to add San Diego State and, and SMU? Is that something that you think is a net positive, or would you rather? Because there, there have been people I've you know interacted with them countless times over the last several months who would rather the conference just stay with the ten remaining teams rather than adding those two schools. Where do you fall on that? No, I, I think if you're looking at the long-term viability of the conference, you got to get back up to 12. Um, I, I just think in this era of conference realignment where seemingly no conference is safe, you know, outside of the SEC and Big Ten, uh, you know, I think the Pac-12 needs an insurance policy by adding a couple of schools, you know. Can you afford to lose uh, one of the, the the four corner schools, if it's going to bring your conference down to eight teams, I I just don't think you can. So, you know, that's the scenario that is that is I mean, absolute bottom of the barrel for Oregon State. You know, if the Pac-12 ceases to exist or has trouble existing, um, that's where things get really, really grim for Oregon State. Um, and, you know, I think you start talking about, you know, those those Mountain West scenarios in that case. So I think adding to the conference, regardless of who it is right now, just getting that stability 
Um, I, I think it helps the long-term outlook of the conference more than staying at 10. Um, I don't think San Diego State and another candidate um, would, you know, would would diminish the value of the Pac-12 in any way. <laughs> SMU. <laughs> Sorry. Yeah, those, I mean, I mean, those are my two. Those are my two favorites as well. Um, there are other programs in Texas that I think could be somewhat attractive, but SMU, I think, is uh, you know, for for the financial reasons that you already brought up, is is a candidate for sure in my mind. Yeah, I think they're the most ready. I don't think they're the only Texas team that could ever be considered in a major way for realignment down the line. I mean, despite their lack of acad- or athletic success, Rice did just get bumped up from Conference USA to the American, if they were to start having success, I'm just saying that is like, they could be the Northwestern of, of the PAC 12 where they're only good at football once every five to seven years, but they are just a premier academic power. And we all know that PAC 12 presidents uh, care very deeply about that sort of stuff. I have a couple more questions for Carter about Oregon state on uh, realignment. And then we have to get into uh, the NIL discussion as well. We have to always discuss bird dogs, though, because it's summertime. Like, we are at the end of June. Time flies when you're having fun, and you have even more fun when you put on bird dog shorts because they make you look good, and their stretch khaki shorts are designed to fit slimmer through the thigh and leg, giving you a truly sculpted look. I know Carter's all about that because he's probably got huge, huge leg muscles, just absolutely tremendously large, and bird dog shorts do the exact same thing as Lululemon, but they fit way better, and they fit better than regular shorts, too, that are made of a stiff, restricting cotton. Bird Dogs fix this issue by inventing cloud-knit fabric that looks just like khaki but stretches so you get a way slimmer fit without having to sacrifice movement. So go get your next order at birddogs.com slash college. They'll throw in a free Yeti-style tumbler with your order. That's birddogs.com slash college for a free Yeti-style tumbler. You won't want to take your Bird Dogs off this summer. We promise you, so go get your next order today. That was half our second segment sip and more of our second segment gulp of the day because we got to be locked and loaded because we have tons to get to here. So I wanted to ask Carter just kind of the general mood around realignment because last time we talked about Oregon State and where they stood and all this sort of stuff, it was, I think, a little bit more of a scary time because there was a lot more unknown because we haven't talked about it for in, in the context of Oregon State in kind of a, a hot second here. But is Oregon State, you know, kind of the fans, the university and whatnot, are you still kind of hearing that, that trepidation about, boy, we don't really know? Because I think everyone understands pretty well at this point, they are not a power broker in the conference. They are not driving the bus on anything. They're not desired by anybody. They're not making moves or, or, or anything like that. So what, what's kind of the feeling around the school and, you know, what, what could happen next? Yeah. I mean, the general vibe is, is never positive when it comes to this topic at Oregon state, but it's certainly less dark than it was um, around this time last year. You know, I think in the immediate aftermath of the LA schools announcing their departure, uh, it was really easy to look at the worst case scenarios um, and obviously for Oregon State, those are, you know, pretty hurtful. I mean, you're looking at situations that would significantly impact the viability of your athletic department. Um, and so I think, you know, now that we are a little further removed from that, the conference has, you know, I, I don't want to say stabilized, but, you know, it, it's stuck together for the last year, at least, uh, these 10 remaining schools. Um, I, I think that, I, I think that has kind of taken away from 
um, just the, the natural tendency to look at, at worst case scenarios. Um, I, I think the fact that, uh, you know, more schools haven't bolted, haven't bolted, that invitations haven't been handed out. Um, I, I think that's a good sign moving forward. The closer we get to a meteorites deal, I, I know, I mean, like nobody knows when that's going to happen, but it feels like we are getting closer and obviously it's going to have to happen going to have to happen eventually. Um, that is the ultimate stabilizing factor, obviously, for the Pac-12 and and ultimately what Oregon State is hoping for the most. I mean, uh, you know, any anytime you hear Oregon State's president or Washington State's president go on record, you know, they're always promoting the meteorites deal. They're the ones who needed to get done the most because that is what keeps this conference together. Um, so, you know, again, I just think it comes back to in the immediate aftermath, we thought the sky was falling. Um, you know, who's going to follow USC and UCLA? Who's the Big 12 going to offer? None of that's happened yet. Um, and so I think that has has kind of, uh, you know, prevented the nightmare scenario for Oregon State. Yeah, I, I think for now it certainly has happened. And it's not for a lack of trying on the Big 12's part, right? I mean, they have yeah. made it very clear. We want these schools, and those schools have told them, we will come in that direction if we feel we are forced there after we see the media deal, but we don't see that as a desirable option. And that's certainly, I think, a, a little bit of a sense of relief for, for Oregon State and Washington State fans, but also does put the onus on the, you know, George Klyavkov and the Pac-12 front office and the presidents, everybody to, to get the media rights deal done and get it, you know, to a, a sufficient dollar figure to, to keep people around. But last thing on this before we hop over to some uh, NIL discussion one of the things I've thought about that, that's held up the media deal this long, there are only about 50 factors that could be, you know, the reason as to why, whether it's the economy or the partners or, you know, tier one and tier two rights and who gets the big gains and, and all this sort of stuff. Unequal revenue sharing is something that's been tossed around quite a bit. I don't think it's impossible for Oregon and Washington to ask for that, but I also don't know that they have the leverage to demand it if they want it. Because you kind of have to have, you know, a threat you can act upon. And I don't know that they have that at this point in time. But is that something that you'd feel would be worthwhile to, you know, if that's what it took to get a media deal that keeps everybody together for, for you know, the next five, six years or however long the deal is. Is that something that you would see as like, okay, I would make that concession if it meant, you know, completely removing all possibility of a disaster scenario? Well, that's the key is is the concession element of this. I mean, it would be a concession for Oregon State because the university would be taking less uh, than it would make if you were to keep everything equal. I mean, Oregon State and Washington State and, you know, the similar small market schools are those schools who would, you know, be at the bottom of the list when it comes to, you know, who's bringing home uh, the, the largest distribution of this media rights payout. Um, so I think, again, it, it all just comes back to doing anything you can to keep the conference intact, um, because that is the key to Oregon State remaining a, a viable Power 5 program in all of these sports moving forward. So I think, you know, as, as much as it's going to benefit the schools that, that you are chasing, um, I, I think you have to do it if you're Oregon State. I think you have to agree to it. I don't think you have a choice. Now, to your point, 
I, I don't know, like you said, if those schools have the leverage to demand it. I, I look at the ACC as kind of a similar situation. It's no coincidence that um, you know their their revenue sharing deal came about right after there was a report that multiple schools were you know seeking options to potentially leave the conference. You know, building mm-hmm. a little bit of the leverage there before seven. they ask for it. Yeah. Um, and so I you know I guess it's a similar situation out here where. You know, you have the four corner schools reportedly talking to the Big 12 and Oregon and Washington reportedly talking to the Big 10. Um, but I, I don't know if those are realistic enough departures to create enough leverage for that. I, I am really curious to see how that plays out, because I do think moving forward, you are going to see that type of model in a lot of the Power Five conferences. Let's jump over to uh, another topic that let's just say Oregon State may not be the most leveraged to to capitalize on in a positive manner going forward. And that and that's NIL. So an interesting story here that came out, I, I think, sometime uh, last week. And an Oregon State men's basketball assistant left the program to go to a Mountain West school, which is kind of telling in and of itself because Tim Shelton is going there to be an assistant coach. Now, Colorado State, actually, they've you know been mentioned from time to time here on on the show because they're a potential expansion candidate. One day, they don't have a lot of athletic success, but they have more money than you would think. They also have more TV viewership than you would probably think. But that's you know a discussion for for another day. But this report came out that Tim Shelton was leaving the staff and on his way out decided to I don't know how to interpret this other than take a shot. Maybe it was just him trying to be realistic and honest and, you know, truthful and whatnot. But he left uh, Wayne Tinkle's staff and is going to Colorado State and cited concerns about Oregon State's ability to compete in the NIL era. He said, quote, we're not going to be Arizona, not going to be Washington or Oregon. That's fine. That gives us an extra chip on our shoulder. But we can't be last in those resources when it came down to my decision I was worried about that. What's your reaction to all that, Carter? Well, I think it could go one of two ways. I, I do think, you know, there is an element of, of quote, taking a shot at Oregon State here. Uh, but it could also be productive for, for this university and, and for its collectives. I think it could serve as a wake-up call. You know, if you can't keep your coaches around, how can you expect to keep your star players around? Um, you know, I, I, I think... Losing Tim Shelton, part of a a new coaching staff at Oregon State last year, you know, in one year, um, in in a time when you're trying to rebuild the program, like, yeah, that that should be a wake up call. You know, if if that is a factor in him leaving at at this crossroads for the basketball program that is trying to get back to, you know, to to even being a 500 level program, um, you know, if he's calling out your NIL situation, and if that is a reason he's leaving for you know, for a mid-major program, you know, you take, you take note of that. So I, I don't know. I, I, I think, like I said, it's detrimental in that it's not a great look for the university, but I think it raises some eyebrows internally um, that could spark some change. So here, here's, here's, here's the question for Oregon State though. Is it something that they have in your view, the ability to act upon because I totally see your point about 
it could be a galvanizing quote and a wake up call to, you know, the donors and boosters and collectives that, that they do have down there. And I believe Oregon State has an NIL collective, right? But according to Shelton, they're just not where they need to be resource wise to be able to retain players, to be able to now retain uh, coaches, at least for, for basketball. Now, they haven't had that issue in in football as much at this point in time. They lost Omar Spates to LSU, but I don't know if there's a world in our lifetimes in which that couldn't happen at any point in time uh, if, if, on a, if NIL is going to play a factor there. But let, let's say it does have that sort of galvanizing effect. Is it something you think Oregon State even can remedy? Like, are they capable of going out and getting the sort of money they need to not just attract players but retain them and stop them from transferring to other programs? In short, no. And and I say that because Oregon State was always going to be at a disadvantage in an NIL era, you know, in this arms race of college athletics where everything is increasingly about the money. Um, Oregon State was always going to be at, at the short end there. You know, Oregon State is not a massive institution. It does not have a huge alumni base in the state. Um, you know, I mean, it, when you compare it to other programs like those in the SEC, like those in the Big Ten, like those that it's going to be competing against in talent and coach retention, um, you know, I think it was always going to be at a disadvantage. So, you know, if Oregon State tries to catch up, you're always going to be playing catch up to the schools that are ahead of you. There is always going to be this group of institutions that has, uh, you know, more NIL, um, you know, just... Resources. What's the word? Resources. Thank you. More resources dollars. at its disposal. Yeah, dollars is really what it comes down to. Um, so I, I think you know Oregon State can take a step forward, um, but I just I I, I do worry, um, you know, that if Oregon State is going head to head against, like you said in Omar Spates' case, an LSU, you know, Oregon State's not going to win that battle more times than not. I think the one upside on the modern day talent acquisition of the portal and NIL that exists in all these programs now for Oregon State is they're not a Stanford type, which have strict academic restrictions that stop them from adding players. I'm not saying they're in a great situation, but I'm just saying it could be worse. Right? Like, like it can always be worse. I mean, Washington State... You know, I think you can make the case they have less overall talent on their roster. They, they, they've brought in some some solid pieces here and there. But overall, you know, they even don't attract a guy like DJ Uyunglele, even though Jake Dickert's been doing some really good things. Now, he didn't have, you know, a 10-win season a year ago, but he has done a really nice job up there in Pullman and still, you know, not able to attract the, the likes of, of a DJU. I, I think that's maybe an upside right now, but... I think the uphill battles that Oregon State has faced, you know, basically in their entire existence as a program, they, they were always going to be there. I think they've just been been amplified now, and I'm not saying it's impossible for them to ever be a consistent winning program, as we'll get to in a sec, but I do think that those things make it even tougher, and that's just an unfortunate spot for the Beavs to have to be in. Yeah, on the flip side, though, I, I don't think that this issue – um, is necessarily as prevalent maybe as Tim Shelton's making it out to be. Now, I can see how, you know, down the line, you could see, you know, part of your roster leave every year. But, 
I mean, let's just look at the last few years for Oregon State's athletic department. Oregon State was losing basketball players left and right before NIL even came into existence. This is, you know, this is a a program wide. This, I mean, this is a deep issue in, in the program. Oregon State has always lost some of its best players and some of its key young pieces to the portal. And I know that, you know, every program has been dealing with this, um, but I think it's amplified at a school like Oregon State where basketball recruiting is is not a strength so keeping as much talent on campus and developing it um you know to the extent to the greatest extent possible is is greatly important um and oregon state's just never been good at that so i don't know how much of a difference nil makes there um on the flip side with with football i mean sure omar spates leaves but you can talk about damian martinez coming back and you know, I know that he has an NIL deal. You can go on his Twitter and see what he's promoting on. And any I can guarantee, and I and, and and that's a great point because I can guarantee you there were big time schools yeah. that called him up and tried to poach him via the transfer portal. Guarantee. Yeah. So again, it's not like Oregon State's completely inept here. It just has priorities. You know, it's not using its NIL dollars to go out there and induce players to come to Oregon State. I know technically every school will say they're not doing that because they're not supposed to, but you know, some are and coaches have gone on the record saying that that has happened to their players. Um, But, but Oregon state doesn't do that. You know, it it prioritizes keeping guys on campus. And frankly, if a a basketball coach thinks that they're not doing a good enough job there, then, you know, I think that's just very telling of where Oregon state is in this landscape, you know, because they are very clearly trying. I mean, they have collectives. These collectives are, um, providing opportunities for student athletes and they're making a difference in the case of a Damian Martinez or some of those other key football players who had opportunities, but elected to come back this year. Yeah. I mean, I would imagine DJU has got something set up mm-hmm. over there because there had to have been other schools now, you know, fit and coaching staff and the culture and all that sort of stuff. That's mm-hmm. a factor as well, but I have to imagine there were some schools that could have maybe offered uh, more more NIL money to DJ that obviously didn't get his his school selection because of, of other factors that Oregon State has done very well, which is a, a nice transition into our, our, our final topic of the day, which is the, the Beavs are going into this season trying to do what they've never done before in the history of their program, win 10 games in back-to-back seasons. And, you know, we talked earlier in the show about how the, you know, the Pac-12 is looking like if they add San Diego State and SMU, yeah, those have the potential to be good programs, but I don't automatically see them as, oh, they're just going to leapfrog Oregon State immediately, right? They still have work to go on that front. It can be done, but it's not necessarily going going to be easy. So I think Oregon State is well positioned to continue to succeed and kind of you know fill part of that void left by USC and UCLA. I think if you look at what UCLA's football team has been over the last 10, 15 years, Oregon State can be that sort of team, but they have to prove they can do it in more than just one season, Carter. So going forward, not just this season, but the season after that and the season after that, how do they put together a five-year stretch where you look back and go, wow, Oregon State averaged eight to nine wins every single year? Well, that is literally the million-dollar question, right? I mean, that is what Jonathan Smith is tasked with right now. I mean, this is Oregon State is entering uncharted waters in the sense that you know, it's coming off its first or its third 10 win season in program history. And like you said, is trying to do that back to back for the first time ever. Um, so I think the key to maintaining success at Oregon State is just keep doing what got you here. 
you know, Jonathan Smith has improved Oregon State's recruiting efforts on an annual basis and supplemented that with some of the best transfer portal classes in the country. Now, you know, Oregon State found more success in the portal in the early days, um, and then people, you know, other programs started catching up. Um, but Oregon State has utilized the transfer portal uh, to its benefit for sure. The talent acquisition element is one thing, but I think what has really been the X factor for Oregon State is this coaching staff, which it by and large has kept almost entirely in a, in intact since Jonathan Smith took over what now almost six years ago, um, Oregon state has, I, I would say one of the best offensive line coaches in the country in Jim Mahalachek. Yep, It has a great star up and coming defensive coordinator in Trent Bray and, and so many other pieces around those guys that have been instrumental in this rebuilding process who have stuck around. Um, and, you know, I, I think at programs like an Oregon state, you can kind of make it out to be a breeding ground for coaching talent who goes off and takes a, a coordinator job at a bigger school or who comes and becomes a head coach at the group of five level. You haven't really seen that at Oregon state. And I think the longer you can keep these guys around, the longer you can maintain what they have built because they are the ones who saw the program at its lowest point and know exactly what it takes to get it to where it was last year. Um, so the recipe is right there. You know, they have access to it. Um, and, and the longer you can keep those guys around, you know, I, I think as long as they're there, it's as sustainable, as successful as the model is, if that makes sense. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I, I do wonder how long they're going to be able to keep Trent Bray as their defensive coordinator. Cause if that, let, let's say they go, let's say they basically repeat last year, they go nine and three, they're a top 20 team. They go out, win a bowl game and the defense is really good. That would be another feather in Trent Bray's cap in terms of padding his coaching resume because he will have lost a bunch of key players and still had you know a, a really successful year. But he he's completely turned that defense around, completely changed the identity of the team at least a season ago. We'll see kind of you know how that balance shakes out this season for the Bees. But I I just wonder. I I think they've been able to do that, Carter, partially because they haven't been in the national conversation in any significant way. But now you watch college game day and they're going to get mentioned a bit more. And they have, you know, big time wins like they did uh, against Florida and the big upset win over Oregon with, with the comeback and whatnot and the spectacle that that was. And now you, you know, have guys like Josh Pate mentioning them a little bit more on, on, on his show. And it's not the only show where, where that's the case. Like I feel like as people start to catch on, you'll start to see those coaches become more interesting candidates for schools. But I think the slow nature of the rebuild because you're at Oregon state and the fact that they haven't been, you know, playing in that many nationally relevant games, I think that has contributed to them being able to, you know, keep their staff together the way they have. But if they go out and put out another 10 win season, I, I just, I don't know how Trent Bray is not hired by somebody somewhere. And, you know, it might also speak to the culture that they've kept in there because Brian Ward got hired from uh, Washington State down to Arizona State. It, it, look, maybe Dillingham was salty after the game formerly known as the Civil War this past year, but I can't imagine if he was willing to hire Brian Ward, he didn't pick up the phone at some point and call Trent Bray and say, hey, do you want to come be my defensive coordinator down here at Arizona State? But I think as they start to become a higher profile program, you could start to see that sort of change. And then the onus will be put on Jonathan Smith to, you know, really look at, okay, 
what sorts of coaches can you hire and how well can you keep this thing running after you lose key assistants? Cause that's a big part of being a head coach. Yeah. I, and you know, I don't know how much these kinds of words are worth, but for whatever it's worth, Trent Bray did go on the record at the end of the season and said that, you know, he doesn't really have aspirations of becoming a head coach. Now that doesn't mean he couldn't leave for a, a bigger defensive coordinator job, or, you know, maybe he has a change of heart or, you know, maybe some school offers him something that he can't turn down. Um, but I do think there is something to be said for a guy who went to Oregon state, who has been on this staff in multiple stints. You know, he's, he was here during the Mike Riley days, um, and, and somebody who's just continued to elevate within this program that he knows so well, it's very similar to a Jonathan Smith situation where I think you and I would agree, Jonathan Smith's probably not going anywhere anytime soon, um, you know, so. for, for, for various reasons. Where you does know, he want to go? A... Exactly. He's coaching um, at his alma mater. Where, like, where, where does he, the NFL? Yeah. Mm. yeah. And I just think that Trent Bray's in a very similar situation for a lot of the same reasons there. Um, so I, you know, I, I would say there are coaches on this staff who would leave before Trent Bray and, you know, that's big because Trent Bray might very well be the, the first or second best assistant coach on this, on this staff right now. Carter Baines, he's at the 24-7 Sports National Desk, beaverblitz.com, the damn podcast. We got him here today, which we appreciate. Carter, thanks as always, man. Thank you. Appreciate everyone listening. I will see you next time. And until then, hope you have a wonderful rest of your day.